You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Luke 15, verse 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was, hung, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never, never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fountain calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, bro this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's Word. Thanks, Clint. And uh, I also want to say thanks to Ben and Lindsay. Um, for those of you that are here, I just want you to imagine for just a moment that there you are a thousand years from now. You have finished playing racquetball with Barnabas, and uh, you're cooling off, and someone walks up to you and says, you don't know me, but you were praying that Ben and Lindsay would have impact, and through their ministry, I am here in eternity with you. Your serve. That would be pretty great, right? So here's what I would love to challenge you to do. Probably just about every single one of you have some sort of smartphone device. I'm about to give what we call a sermon introduction. 
And for once, I'm going to invite all of you, while I'm giving my sermon introduction, to pull out your smartphone, whatever it might be, and make yourself a reminder. Every day, it goes off at, I don't know, how about 11.15? And all it says is Ben and Lindsay. And when that reminder goes off, you have two options. Ignore it and do nothing, or simply say, my God, would you do through them what you have done for me? Would you maximize their ministry? So right now, I'm going to challenge you. This is how you can really be a legitimate blessing to these two. Ben and Lindsay, 1115, every day this alarm goes off on your phone. Now, as you're doing that, let me sort of bring you up to speed on what's going on. We have been in a semester-long series in a study through the parables of Jesus. We call it Jesus Stories. As Jesus goes about his earthly ministry, he transitions from doing signs and wonders to beginning to speak in parables, stories that make some things clear, make things unclear to other people. Thus far, through the month of September, we have been in the book of Matthew, all through chapter 13, where Matthew is telling us that the offer of the kingdom to Israel has been made, but they rejected it. And so the kingdom is now being offered via the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. And that's Matthew's point. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, saying that the king has come, but he's not what we expected. Things are different. So this morning, it's October. We're going to transition and go to the book of Luke. Luke is a Gentile. Surprisingly, Luke writes more words in our New Testament than any other author, including Paul. His two-volume set, Luke and Acts, are really, they go side by side. And he's writing not to a Jewish audience to convince them that Jesus is the king. No, he's writing to a specific individual most likely a Gentile named Theophilus. means lover of God or loved by God, either way. Trying to convince Theophilus that Jesus is the man. Now, I don't mean like he's the man. I mean he is the man, the Lord Sabaoth. He is the commander of the hosts of the armies of God Almighty. See, Mark is trying to say that Jesus is the suffering servant. Matthew's saying that he's the rightful king. John is saying that Jesus is God. Luke is saying he's the man. So Luke writes this two-volume set to say that the birth of the Christ, that's the gospel of Luke, produces the birth of the church, that's the book of Acts. Now you sort of need to know that because that's why Luke, the arranger and compiler of these different stories, puts them together as he does. The story that we've already heard this morning From Luke chapter 15, Luke is the only gospel writer that records this parable. And he records it because he's trying to convey a greater, grander truth, that Jesus is the man. Now, Luke chapter 15 is the most frequently preached passage in evangelical churches for the last 50 years. And so this morning, we get to pad those stats and we're going to join them. But I don't want that familiarity to breed any sort of malaise. I want you to listen as if you're very soul dependent on it because it just might. This may be my favorite passage where Jesus explains the Father. In fact, the Gospel of John says in chapter 1 that Jesus exegetes. He reveals, he pulls out and demonstrates and shows what God the Father is like. And I think this is the central passage and chapter in which Jesus does that. But before we can understand what's happening in the passage we've just read, we have to have a little bit of an on-ramp. 
we have to have a little bit of a backdrop to really understand the intensity of what Jesus is doing here. In chapter 14, we get a setting, and it's a sitting. Chapter 14 is absolutely crucial, or you don't understand chapter 15. In chapter 14, Jesus is the guest at a dinner party. And these dinner parties are probably not like yours and mine where we invite people in and we close the doors and we begin to eat together. These were more sort of open-air affairs where people walking by could sort of see what was going on and look and pause and linger a bit. And Jesus is at this banquet given by a very wealthy man and someone shows up, chapter 14, that, oh man, this dude, oh, this guy has a dropsy. Uh, most of us don't know what dropsy is, and that's fine. Dropsy is not a pleasant condition. Dropsy is where the extremities, usually a foot or a hand or all of them, uh, uh, they're really, really swollen, and they're fluid-filled, and they hurt, which causes the person with dropsy to moan and to be generally unpleasant to be around. There is skin affectation that comes with it. It's really it's just not good. And so what's happening is all the wealthy people at this banquet are going, oh, it's Dropsy Dave, and they all move over here, and nobody wants to sit by Dropsy Dave because he's, he's always kind of moaning, and blah. And Jesus sees this, and he says, hmm, you are the leaders of Israel, and you are avoiding the guy who needs you most because all you care about is your own importance. And then Jesus gives them a stinging rebuke. He says, the more, essentially, the more you care about your own importance the more indifferent you will be to others. The more you care about your own importance, the more indifferent you will be to others. And then Jesus is going to tell them some stories to say, but I have good news. God's not like that. God is not threatened nor concerned in the slightest about his own importance, his glory, his mass, his meaning, his value, his significance, his worth. He knows which enables him to be a going, sending, reaching out kind of God. See, Jesus is now going to tell three stories to tell these people at the banquet what, G, what God is like, and it's not what they expect. What we're going to find out from these stories is that God loves the lost. Now, I know we sort of hear that, we know that, we assume that, but oh, so much more forward-leaningly, passionately, costly. God loves the lost. So let me set the stage a little bit more. In chapter 15, let me begin reading in verses 1 and 2. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Luke writes this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. I want you to see this movie in your mind. Here's Jesus sitting at a banquet table, hosted by a wealthy homeowner, and some other of his friends have come, but now some other disreputable undesirables have come by, and they just can't get enough of this Jesus. These tax collectors, they're not just IRS agents. That's not it. These are individuals who have purchased from Rome a franchise making it legal to collect taxes from their countrymen. They've bought a franchise that allows them to fleece and cheat their own countrymen, and therefore they are the most despised citizens in all of Israel. They were traitors, betrayers. People hated them. Not only are these guys coming by because they just can't get enough of Jesus, but these people called sinners. Well, who is that? Aren't, aren't all people sinners? Well, yes, but this is a technical term. 
These are Jewish people, Israelites, living in Israel, who have formally, publicly, and officially renounced the law of Moses and said, I'm out on that deal. I just want to party. So these are the guys that are walking around in, you know, the tuxedo t-shirts all the time. They just want to party, okay? They're living just like the Romans and the Greeks, always throwing down, engaged in all sorts of sensual pleasures and having a ball. And therefore, the devout Israelites hate them, cannot stand them, look down at them. So verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the good old boys. They're the guardians of the good old days. Those who said, oh no, not on my watch. We aren't going in that direction. Oh no, we're going to defend the law of Moses because that's our jam. The Pharisees and the scribes should say, through grumbling, diagongismos, through grumbling, we're saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He gets them on himself. He receives prosdeketai. He eagerly awaits them. It's this idea of he, he, he extends his fingers to them. This is how Jesus is being accused by the Pharisees of reaching out to sinners. He extends his fingers to these undesirables. And by the way, these Pharisees and scribes, they weren't wrong. What they were saying was accurate. These people were, in fact, tax collectors. They were, in fact, sinners. And it calls to mind a much later passage from Revelation 12 that says, we, the brethren, have an accuser that stands before the throne day and night and hurls insults and accusations, and he's right. But we have an advocate who stands in our defense. This little story is setting us up for that. This guy welcomes, he eats with them, he is becoming like them, and they couldn't stand it. There's no question that this Jesus was beginning to be viewed by some as maybe he is the Messiah. All of the signs and wonders that he has done, all the miracles that he's performed, all the sayings and the teachings that he has given, there's something to him. Even the Pharisees had to admit this rabbi, this upstart rabbi, man, he was something special, but why was he demeaning himself with these undesirables. He was wrecking their system. Jesus knows their heart. And so Jesus is now going to tell them three quick stories. Now, in the interest of time, I'm just going to quickly summarize the first two, and then we'll unpack the third one that we've already heard read this morning. Jesus says to these scribes and Pharisees who are grumbling, he knows their hearts, and so he speaks to their heart, not to what they're saying, but to what they're feeling and thinking. It says, imagine that one of you guys loses a sheep. <laughs> That's funny. He's talking to scribes and Pharisees, the upper crust, the top echelons of Jewish society. Shepherds were the very bottom of the barrel because they smelled like, oh, what is it? Sheep. Now, if you've ever been to Israel or some country that specializes in sheep, you've perhaps seen and met a shepherd, they are not fragrant, well, at least not in a good way. Oh, they're giving something off, but it's not that which makes you want to embrace it. And so Jesus is going to make these scribes and Pharisees the main character in his little story. Imagine one of you guys loses a sheep. Now, everybody understands this story. We, as Westerners, have a tendency to hear this and go, so what, I'll lose a sheep. I got, a, I got 100, I, now I'm down to 99. Big whoop. No, 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 no. Everybody understands this. In that day and time, in the ancient Near East, a family could basically sustain and support a maximum of 15 sheep. That's it. 
because you would bring them into your home and that's all you can support. And so you, you collaborated with other different family members and you brought all of your sheep together. In this case, you would hire the lowest dude in town, the knuckle-draggingest guy, and say, you're going to be our like community shepherd. And you have one job. Are you paying attention? One job. It's this. Don't lose the sheep. That's it. That's your job description. Don't lose sheep. You got it? I got it. Don't lose the sheep. And so let's just say one of you guys loses a sheep. <laughs> Jesus giving him something like this. He's calling these guys shepherds, and they're having to feel this. What do you do? Well, you have to go after the sheep. See, sheep are the only species of animal on the planet that are completely symbiotic, meaning this. They absolutely cannot survive and support themselves. If they are not attached to another species, in this case, humanity, they die. They are utterly helpless. It's been said that sheep are dumb. They are not dumb. They are, however, defenseless, and they are dependent. They're not dumb. Left to their own devices, they will merely lay over and die. They have to be defended by a shepherd. And so if one of them gets out and goes away, it's a, it's a death warrant. And so the shepherd has to go off and find it, lest it perish. And the sheep will do nothing to, find, to be found because it's frightened. It just lays over and it looks like a rock because at this point it's dirty and gray and it's hard to be found. But the shepherd goes and navigates all through these craggy passes, these ravines and these dry riverbeds called wadis, and he finally finds it. What do you suppose the shepherd does, Jesus says? Well, he takes out his staff and he just wails on the sheep. No, absolutely not. That's what I would do, ask my children. No, it's not what he does. He picks up the sheep. Now we've got 75 pounds of floppy and dirty. And we was, this was explained to me by a shepherd in Israel. He puts the sheep on his neck. So now he's got the belly of this beast right on his neck. And the sheep probably doesn't like this a whole lot. And so the shepherd takes his forefeet and he binds them together. And now the sheep, defenseless, is bound to the life of the shepherd. But now the hard part's just beginning for the shepherd. Now he's got to walk back out of all these craggy, rocky ravines. And he gets out, and he walks all the way back to the camp. And now it's dark. All the other sheep have made it back into the fold. And he brings this sheep. And what does he do? I'm going to beat you like it's my job. No. He rejoices. And he calls everybody else together. He goes, hey, it was lost. But man, it's found. It's not going to die. It's going to survive. It's going to be okay. And everybody rejoices. And the Pharisees and the scribes hearing this, boy, they burn. Because they know they are supposed to be Israel's shepherds. And they have left all of the sheep out to be devoured by wolves. Oh, but Jesus isn't done. Let's say you're a woman. <laughs> oh, this Jesus. You don't think he's got a sense of humor? Calling someone a shepherd, that's just mean. You're going to call him a woman? <laughs> Now, this, this isn't me saying this. You take it up with the Almighty when you see him. In that day, women were considered less than. We know better now. But in that day, particularly in the ancient Near East, a Jewish man would rise every single morning, and he would say, O oh, Father, I thank thee that thou didst not make me, because they spoke in King James back then, I thank thee that thou didst not make me a Gentile, nor a slave, nor a woman. And so now Jesus is going to put them right in the story. Now they have to identify with a woman. Just imagine, Jesus says, which one of you, if you're a woman, you lose a coin. Well, what's going on with this? Well, 
This is a silver coin. It's a, it's a denarius. It's a day's wage. It's about four and a half grams of silver. And a woman who's got coins like this, the text is telling us something. She's a single woman, perhaps a widow, perhaps not yet married, who knows what. But she lives in a home all by herself, and her routine is she takes care of her little windowless house and her dirt floor, and she sweeps, but she notices that one of her ten coins is missing. Ten coins bound together in a little dressing and usually worn on the garment or even in the hair. This is an advertisement saying, hello, I've got some cash, I'm available. And this is how she presents herself to the community and the men within the community. I have a small dowry, probably given to her by her father or her brother or something like that. But if she loses one of those 10, that is her whole identity. It's her worth. It's her opportunity for future fulfillment. And so what does she do? Some of you ladies know what this feels like if you've ever lost your wedding ring. You will tear the slab out of the earth to find it. And this is what she does, and she searches, and she searches, and she searches, and she finds it, and she experiences, and she feels that grace and that mercy and that exhilaration of finding that which was lost, it's now found. And so what does she do? She calls all the other women. She gets on her little uh, chat thread, and she goes, hey, ladies, y'all got to get over here, praise hands emoji, and they all come over, and they do whatever they do, and they have chai tea lattes, and they cry, and they hug, and then they watch rom-coms. I don't know what else is to happen. That which was lost was sought, it was found, there is rejoicing. Story number two. Now the Pharisees are feeling very itchy and scratchy. Story number three. There's a father, and he has two sons, and they're both lost. So chapter 15, now in verse 11, Jesus continues, and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property. Give me the share of usias. Not, not your estate so that I can manage it and grow it and build further upon your empire. No, no, he doesn't say this word, estate. He says, give me your stuff, your usias. It's the only time this word's used in the New Testament. Just give me your stuff. I just want your junk. I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with this family, this place. I just want your stuff. Wow. Give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, right here, the Pharisees hear this, and they shriek aloud, I'm sure, at this banqueting table, because this is the most ingracious, insolent, disrespectful thing a son can say to a father. In Jewish law, an inheritance cannot be conveyed unless the father is dead. This is the son saying to the dad, you're not dying fast enough. I need you to be deader. I want nothing to do with you. I just want your stuff. I want no relationship with you. I just want what you can provide. And the Pharisees must be leaning forward. Now they're hooked and they're thinking, oh, here we go, baby. The father's going to backhand this boy and drag him to the city gate and the elders are going to throw rocks at him until he's dead because that's what Deuteronomy 21 says to do in this instance. But... Verse 12, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Property, it's bad translation. The word is bios, his life. Gave them everything he had. He divided it. He didn't just say, hey, guys, this is what you're going to get one day. He divided it between both boys. said, it is now yours. He divests himself. Why? Because the father is willing to risk rejection of his love. 
That's a big one. The father is willing to risk rejection of his love. The most painful emotion a human being can experience is unrequited love. And the father is willing to risk that. He divides it between both of his sons. Verse 13, not many days later, so some time does pass, but it's too much time. The son's still going, dude, you're not dying. You would need to be dead already. I'm done with you. And so, verse 13, not many days later, the son gathered all that he had. And the text makes it pretty clear that he liquidates it. No! The Pharisees must have flipped out. See, Israel is so closely and tightly identified by the land. They believe, because they're right, that God himself apportioned by the casting of light of lots territorial boundaries. So if you are a Jewish nobleman that has land, God himself in his sovereignty and grace gave it to you. How dare this ungrateful, entitled, snot-nosed punk take it and didn't just say, I'm going to hold on to it for later. He liquidates it and sells it to somebody else outside the family. All must certainly be lost. He just converts it into quick cash. Verse 13, he took all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. This does not mean he went to Poland. It means he probably went across the Sea of Galilee into one of the ten cities of the Decapolis, where all of the Roman soldiers would have been garrisoned. This is the, the height of debauchery and idolatry and paganism, and this guy takes his recently gotten cash and goes across the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he sets up shop into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. We'll find out later that, that reckless living is a euphemism. It means he spent it on prostitutes as fast as he could. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. Now, there's two things that are really interesting here. He spent and wasted everything. That's where we get our word prodigal, extravagant, wasteful, exorbitant. That's his fault. As he has spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. Not just a famine, a severe famine. That's not his fault. But ain't that the way it goes? You find yourself in a series and a chain of bad choices, and then something happens in the world that just absolutely exacerbates and compounds, and now this one bad thing and this one bad thing come together to make ten bad things in your life. And not just a famine, a severe famine. We know from historical record that when famine would strike this part of the world back in those days, it would become apocalyptic in no time. Atrocities of cannibalism and abuses, horrifying. And this guy finds himself in a pagan city in the midst of severe famine and hardship. Oh, it doesn't get any worse than this. Well, except that it does. Verse 15, well, actually, he sees himself in, a, in the country, and he began to be in need. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, a wealthy pagan. He literally says he glued himself, doing whatever it took, whatever he needed to do to affix himself to this wealthy citizen of that country, who then sent him into the fields to feed pigs. I got no more work for you. I have no resources. Why don't you just go out there and lay down with the pigs and occasionally throw some seeds at them and you can eat whatever's left. Have you ever wrestled with a pig for food? Don't answer that, Joe. This is not a good place to be. This is a bad, bad place you found yourself. And by the way, swine, pigs, are ceremonially unclean. This good Jewish boy, the son of a Jewish noble, now finds himself destitute, broke, beholden to another person of another religion in another land. 
wrestling with pigs for scraps. This is about as awful as it gets. Verse 16, that job wasn't even paying him anymore, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But, verse 17, is a hinge. When he came to himself, literally, he came to his mind. He begins to think clearly for the first time in a long time. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? How many of my father's hired servants? This is mythos. It's not slaves. Oh, slaves were highly esteemed. Slaves were treated like family members. They ate meals with the family. Hired servants were the mythos. They were the lowest of the dregs. And he says, my father is a man of nobility and character. See, his upbringing, his his teaching about the Father matters. He reverts back to that which he knows. My Father at least was good. He took care of his hired hands, and he hatches a plan. Verse 18, I want you to notice all of the I wills here. I will arise, and I will go to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This, by the way, is the first flicker of repentance, but it stops right there. Yes, repentance does involve an element of shame. It is an accurate assessment of one's self that prompts attitude change and therefore action. But right away he goes off. He recognizes the depravity and the immense darkness of his situation, so much so that he's willing to take action, but he misses the point. In Jesus' story, he says, I'm going to fix this. I can fix this. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to solve my situation. I'm going to cure my circumstance. So he hatches this plan. He says in verse 19, I'm going to say to my dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Let me work this out. Let me earn this all over again. The rabbis in antiquity would say, repentance is recognizing your sin and working to earn God's favor. That is a rabbinical quote. So everybody understands this. This is intuitive. It's what we all assume. It's what the Pharisees are going, yeah, that's right. Stick it to him, Dad. Make him come back and earn it. He's going to have to work for it. We don't have to work for it. We have been. So Jesus is totally setting him up for a gut punch here. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So it's obviously daytime in Jesus' story. His father keeps looking out at the horizon. Is that him? No. Wait, is that him? It's not him. Oh, is it? It's not him. And day turns into week, turns into month, and this guy's not coming home. This guy's not coming back. Till one day he's looking out across, and he recognizes that unmistakable plot, that profile. The hair just so... The, the, the cut of the jaw just so from a distance, and he can't contain himself because he knows that his boy is alive. If you're, if you're a parent, you know this feeling. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion. Bad translation. His guts moved. He had a bellyache. He was so moved with empathy. His guts jumped, and he just goes, ah, my boy, this noble, regal father. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran. And right there, I think the Pharisees and the scribes, they just snap. No way. No way. No way does a noble Jewish man of repute do this. It is the lowest expression of foolishness and shame. 
Children run around. Women occasionally will run around, but a man never runs. And this isn't just run. This is sprint. It's, a, it's, an, a, it's an athletic term. It's like he's running against Usain Bolt. He has to reach down, grab his tunic, and tuck it into his belt, thereby exposing every man's worst fear, his own legs in daylight. <laughs> it's like looking at a road map. There's veins and there's, it's liver, oh. this guy exposes his legs and takes off at a dead sprint. The Midrash said that priests could not raise their robes even in the midst of doing blood sacrifice. They just had to let it soak because a priest might accidentally show his ankles. One of the famous rabbis was walking through a very twisted thorn bush and adjusted his ankle slightly, raised his robe so that it would not tear, and he had to go and stand before the Sanhedrin. It is that much of an offense. You do not show your legs. And by the way, guys, that's probably still a good idea. Just... But this guy picks up his gown, tucks it in, and he goes off at a dead sprint towards this guy. Verse 20, he felt compassion and ran and embraced him, totally took him in, surrounded him. And then the, the verb says, and was kissing him. But it was, and he was falling on his neck. It's the actual expression. He just couldn't stop himself. He grabs him. Need I remind you, this kid smells of pig. He's nasty. He's got it under his nails. He's got it coming off of him, probably wearing not much more than a post-it note, and he just falls on his neck, and he buries his face, totally undignifies himself. And the Pharisees and the rabbis are going, no, you're saying that he's undignified, that he's ignoble. Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you what God is like. It's not what you expect. Falling on his neck and embracing him and weeping and crying for him. Now's my chance, thinks the son. I'm going to fix this. He's, he's emotional. He's vulnerable. Here's my shot. And the son, said to his, he said, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And he was right. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He just wanted a, a plan of reparation, of, of restoration. The father, <laughs> but the father said to his servants, are you seeing this? The father sees the outline on the horizon, tucks in his gown into his belt, and takes off running, which all the servants are like, oh my gosh, there he goes. And they have to run off after him. This doesn't ever happen before, but they have to follow him. Where is he going? They don't know. They get there, they're all out of breath. <gasps> and they're seeing the father, the master of the, of the estate, weeping and hugging. And then he says to the servants who are still standing there sucking air, going, <gasps> he speaks to them. He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. They're like, oh, 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 you mean like right now? Okay. And so they have to run back to the house, get the gear, and then run back to where the father and the son are. The father doesn't even listen to the son's attempt at reconciliation. Like, are you kidding? You can't earn this. You can't fix this. It is a human problem that demands a God-sized solution. You cannot fix this. And the hearers, the scribes, and the Pharisees would have known exactly what was going on. The robe? Oh, it's not just the robe. It's my very best garment. It is the robe, the garment, the cloak that tells everybody what I'm worth. Wrap him in it. Drape him in it. He will never again be seen in rags. I am declaring worth and nobility. I am declaring significance and meaning on him. I am dressing him. He cannot dress himself. He has no resources. I'm doing it. 
bring me the ring. What is the ring? The ring is the symbol of authority. Put the ring on him. He will now again have responsibility for all of my resources. The one who squandered it all away, yeah, that's right. I am restoring. I am giving him productivity in my home, in my household, in my estate. Bring him sandals. Put them on his feet. Oh, no, no not the sandals. Oh, yes. You see, slaves and hired workers did not wear shoes. They worked barefoot so they couldn't go too far from the master's land. Only the sons and the father wear sandals. And so the father is telling him, you're trying to just be a hired hand? That's not good enough. Don't settle. I am declaring you a son. And in a moment, he is fully restored by no act or work of his own. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly, right now, no probationary period, no waiting Right now, he's restored immediately because I have done this. He doesn't have to stew or simmer in his own grease. I have done this. Bring it quickly. Verse 23, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Hmm. This is something that would only be done once every one or two years. Meat was a, a very rare uh, dish. And it was always a big enough deal that they would bring the entire village, perhaps as many as 200 people. But the celebration, the fattened calf, is not for the son. The fattened calf is for the father because he's the reconciler. Just like the shepherd who found a sheep, just like the woman who found a coin, the one who found it, the one who reconciles, is the one who is celebrated. For this son uh, was dead, verse 24, and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. That's act one. And in act one, there are eight stanzas. That's important. There are eight little sections in act one. Now we're going to move very quickly to act two. We're going to get introduced to the other lost brother. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He calls a, a child, a pydon. It's a fringe little kid from the village. Hey, what's, what's, what's going on? He's sort of irritated and bothered. I've been very busy out there working. He wasn't working. He's a son. He's been supervising. He's been sitting in his Silverado with a clipboard, eating a moon pie. He ain't doing any work. But now he hears that there's a party going on, and he wasn't invited. He's a little bit miffed. And so he calls one of his servants, these children, and asks what these things meant. And the servant says to him, this is my favorite verses, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back, and our Bible says, safe and sound. No, 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 no. Remember, this is Jesus, who is Jewish, who's talking to scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus, telling the story through the voice now of this little boy, says, Master, your father has killed the calf because your brother is back, and your father has declared him, and the Greek word is hygiene. <laughs> okay. That's weird, because he's not. He smells like pig squeezins. Your father has declared him hygiene. What in the world? In the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, that's how they translate the word shalom. Whole, well, restored, full, at peace. Don't you see? Dude, why don't you get this? Your dad has done a thing, and he's made this boy, your brother, shalom. He was anything but shalom, wrestling with pigs in a foreign country, squandered his father's wealth with prostitutes. But the father has said, 
you are shalom. Because the Father has the means to do that. Verse 28, but he was angry, the older brother, and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Now the hearts of the Pharisees burn. Because that verse, verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in, that is a capital offense that is punishable by death. The older son is demonstrating that he also wants no relationship with the father whatsoever. He merely wants his stuff too. He's just going about it in a different way. I don't want you. I have no relationship with you. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing to get your stuff. And saying, I will not go into your party was punishable by death because of the insolence. And yet, Jesus says in verse 28, his father came out and begged him. And the Pharisees are going, ah, because they know they are the older brothers. And Jesus is saying, but even the father is pursuing you. You're every bit as lost as the sinners and the tax collectors. You just don't know it. God has come but it's not what you expected. He's even going after you because God loves the lost. Verse 29, but the older brother answered his father, look, oh, strike two. That's a capital offense to address one's father in that day and age like that. Look, not my father with respect. No, look, look, you, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat Forget the fattened calf. You didn't even give me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You don't have any friends, you think the father's going to say. In other words, I know how this game works. I am playing by the rules. I am following the rule book. I'm not going to say I'm sorry to you. You owe me an apology. I'm doing it right. You're breaking the rules. Jesus says, yup. Verse 30. But when this son of yours came, doesn't associate him as his own brother, oh no. When this son of yours came who has devoured your property, your life, your bios, with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. Misunderstanding, older brother, wasn't for him. It's the father. There can be no reconciliation unless the reconciler initiates. The fattened calf is to honor what the father has done. The father said to him, son, it's an intimate term, technoi, not huios. It's, it's my boy. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, he restores him. He's your brother, was dead, and he's alive. He was lost and is found. Now, there is a wonderful master of rhetoric happening here. In the first story, there's something that is lost, and a shepherd seeks. In the second story, there is something that is lost, a coin, and a woman seeks. In the third story, there is something that is lost, a brother. Who's seeking? See, in this context, in this culture, it would have been crystal clear. In this culture and context, the older brother is the defender of the family. It's not the father's job. It is the older brother to defend the family at all costs. The older brother is the one who should have said, Dad, at my expense, I'll go find him. Sorry that this has happened to us. I'm going to go get him. But in Jesus' third story, we're left wanting and waiting, wondering where is the seeker in this story. Now, remember I told you that Act 1 has eight stanzas. Act 2 with the older brother only has seven stanzas. We're left with a cliffhanger. What's, what's going to happen? 
surely the story should end like this. This is how I want the story to end. And the older brother also came to his senses, and he lowered his head, bowed his face to the ground, and said, my father, I'm so sorry. I humbly repent. You are good, and I just want you. I don't care about your stuff. I just want you. Can I please come in and celebrate how great and good you are? So I want the story to end. But Jesus doesn't finish the story because he knows that the Pharisees will finish the story. Instead of the story going like that, the story really goes on in the end of the Gospel of Luke to say, and the brother was outraged and picked up a piece of wood and beat his father to death. And that's what happened. In just a few short days, Jesus will be dead. What is Jesus saying? Don't you know who the Father is? What he has done? I love you, tax collectors and sinners, and I am crazy about you, Pharisees and scribes, even though you will take my life. I offer it if you will but come in and have fellowship. Jesus is saying, don't you get it? I am entrusted with everything. The kingdom has been given to me. And I will go and rescue all my brothers and sisters at my expense. To whom did the fattened calf really belong? It belonged to the older brother. Because the estate had already been divided. And Jesus is saying through the rest of the gospel of Luke, I will spend all that I have, all that I am. Dad, let me go and get them. They're defenseless. They're dependent. They need me. And at just the right time, the father looks at the son and says, go get him. Now, some of you are here this morning, and you are still in the first camp, or perhaps you've hit rock bottom, and you're still thinking somewhere according to man's economy, and you're thinking, I can fix this. I can give enough money to the Salvation Army. I can help enough people across the street. I can not speed through too many more school zones. I can not cuss at the Cowboys this afternoon, and I'll start my reparation process. Jesus says, no, stop it. And he's desperately waiting to fall on your neck in the midst of your muck. And there's some of the rest of us who are just so deeply astonished that this church, that any church would have anything to do with the least and the last and the lost. And you're thinking, but I'm doing the right things. I'm paying my taxes. I'm being good. Where's my blessings? I just want you to know the Father is entreating you to come in, and he wants to fall on your neck as well. And then there's some of you that just get it. You know that you've been at once both of those brothers, but there's really three sons in this story, aren't there? There's the wayward brother, there's the self-righteous brother, but then there is the true older brother. Jesus is our true elder brother. We have all been in that brother or that brother, but being a Christian recognizes I am in the one true son, and the Father lavishes his love upon me. If that's you, then I wanna, I wanna encourage you to not grow weary of doing good. And to be like our big brother, eagerly looking for ways to extend your fingers to reach out for those that are lost. That's what we want to be about at this church and in this campus. In a moment, we're going to take Lord's Supper together. No, we're not going to have a fattened calf for those of you who are vegan and don't eat anything with a shadow. We're just going to have communion. 
okay? This is not for people who are perfect, but this is for people who are in the Son, who are in Christ, who are indwelled by His Spirit. You don't have to be a member of Bethel, but we do ask, if you're going to take part in communion with us, that you be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, that there be nothing between you and the Lord and nothing between you and anybody else. We're going to pass these elements in a moment. I'm going to ask any men that are going to serve, if you would please come forward. If you will hold on to the elements, we'll take them at the end. Children, if your parents haven't told you that this is for you, then please just let the elements pass. If you're not a believer, just let the elements pass. No one's going to point at you and make any scene about this. This is how we get to commemorate and celebrate and contemplate that the Father has declared us sons. Not by anything that we have done. Not by our own merit. We have earned nothing. You know what my favorite part about the whole story is? I think it's that when the son, the younger son, goes into the banquet... He never says another word. He never says, okay, well, now I'm going to get to work. Nope. He just goes and parties at the Father's extravagance. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to pass these elements. We'll take them together at the end. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much for who you are, for what you have done. We pray, God, that you, through your word, would speak to us. Continue to soften our hearts. Where there is repentance, let there be, Father. Pray that you will speak to us through this time of music, through this time of prayer, through the time of passing these elements. You will leave no heart unchanged. God, we love you. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.